conversation last night with uh, some of the young folks at my house, and it was one of those times where you find yourself being as surprised at what is coming out of your own mouth as perhaps others were at hearing it, because you just felt like we were carried along in the love and grace of God. I came into the, to the room and they were referring to some meetings that we have had in the last months or so where we talked about the difference between the prime product of God's purpose and the byproduct of our individual blessing. And we talked, I gave the simple if crude analogy in one of those subsequent meetings where I talked about butter versus buttermilk. Does everybody remember that? And so I asked them a question last night that I want to ask you, what is the prime product of God's will in an individual's life? What is the heart of God's purpose for my life and how do I know I'm fulfilling it? Does anybody want to venture? Why did you make that so simple? Amen. So we kind of went around the room last night and I thought that everything that they offered, that we offered in that living room was valid and true. Some said, I want to see our generation. I want to see them make a commitment that will hold them through the process of discipleship that this journey is going to entail. Others said, I want to see the kingdom of God expanded. I think the prime product is the expansion of God's kingdom. Others said, it's the love of God. And so on and so forth. Several said, it's the great commission. It's getting the gospel to those who need it. And so we went around the room and I told them that I felt like all of those really did touch at what the prime purpose of God is since Jesus until now, until the Lord comes. All of those things, the love of God, the commitments that would hold us and keep us in the discipleship that he would bring, the great commission, the building of the kingdom, but ultimately, the prime purpose is God's glory. Because if I say that the prime purpose is to love people, then that, is, that begs a question, that raises an issue. Who says what love is? And if I say that the prime purpose is to expand the kingdom, then that raises the question, am I assessing what kingdom expansion looks like? And can I know what kingdom expansion looks like? If I say it's reaching the lost, then does that not raise also the question of how the lost can be reached by my efforts? or by the sovereign grace of God. So let me bear this out a little bit. 
If a person says, my prime purpose in God is to raise up a church, then when at first that church doesn't fill with committed saints, he's going to say, am I doing God's will? Maybe I should change something. Maybe I should soften my message. Maybe I should compromise the truth. Maybe I should water this down and make it more applicable because after all, my purpose is to get the most people possible here. We don't know how God raises up a church. We can't fathom how he manifests his love. But our responsibility is a whole lot simpler. It is to bring him glory. You say, well, how do I bring him glory? The Bible gives us a lot of ways to bring God glory. But the greatest way to bring him glory is to trust him with all your heart and let that trust ramify into obedience. Unqualified obedience. That's how we're going to bring God glory. Devotion brings God glory. One definition of devotion is that which is sacrificed to a God. There's a lot of things that the Bible says about glory, and we might touch on some of that momentarily. But my task is to bring Him glory. Think about the second chapter of Ezekiel when the Lord called Ezekiel to go to the house of Israel. And He said, I am calling you to a rebellious house of a stiff-necked people. And he told this prophet, they will not hear your words. But I'm calling you there so that they may know that a prophet was among them. Now if Ezekiel had been one of these guys who felt like his purpose was to win souls, and he had gone to this stiff-necked people, he might have been trapped by how few of them received the truth and he might have been tempted to modify God's truth to make it more palatable to rebellious Christians or rebellious believers in his day. But he knew that he didn't have any responsibility, any obligation except to obey the one to whom he had devoted his entire life. To be obedient in a manner that brings glory. Who is the only one in all the Bible who's called a preacher of righteousness? And how big was his church? The only man in all the Bible who's called a preacher of righteousness. Should that indicate to us that righteousness doesn't sell well? He didn't have a church of 25,000. He didn't even have a church of 25. He could barely keep his family of eight in line. In fact, he really didn't. And the judgment of God came on his youngest son. If he had said, my prime purpose is to be a preacher of righteousness and to build a great church. Well, then when God said, why don't you get out your saw, your nails, your lumber yard of gopher wood and 
why don't you start building an ark? He would have felt like that was a distraction. And there are a lot of distractions, but obedience is never a distraction. Obedience is never a distraction, no matter how small or great. And I don't know what he said. I don't know how he rationalized. I don't even know that he tried to rationalize his obedience when he set about for 120 years obeying something that there was little evidence to substantiate. I don't know how he rationalized it, but maybe he said, God has a way of doing things that always takes man and his expectations by surprise. Dad, why are we doing this? Did you see how few came to church last Sunday? There was nobody. The patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. But Noah didn't wait to get to work on the ark in the small steps of obedience, even though it was going to take him 120 years. Amen. I've heard people say things in the past, and I understand where they're coming from, but I've heard them say things like, I want to preach the gospel. I could care less about agriculture. You, you grow your tomatoes, and I'm going to go fulfill the Great Commission. But that begs the question of whether you know how to fulfill the Great Commission. And it assumes God does things according to our conventions. And there's no evidence for that in Scripture. The things that we think are small and insignificant, the salvation of the whole world may pivot on them. Like a hinge that may or may not break based on the trust and faith you can or cannot maintain toward God and His Word. The things that we think are big, God may think, He may count them as very little. We are told that Jesus' brothers were kind of goading him. And they said to him, will you not go up and show yourself when the big feast was going on in Jerusalem? Aren't you going to go up? And the implication was, you're really a big nothing. If you had something to offer, you would go and fit yourself in a slot in the conventions and programs of man. You're really a big zero. And what did Jesus respond to them? He said, your time is any time. But my time has not yet come. He felt like he had to be obedient, not just in the what, but in the when. In the how. In the who with. In the who to. And we know that he eventually did go on the greatest day of the feast. He did go and stand and cry out and God did something great. But he was waiting. The same thing had tried to happen on the day of his first miracle. Mary, his mother of all people in the world, 
She knew that Jesus had a special call and purpose and anointing on his life. Remember, she's the one who stored all these things up in her heart. She had a full bank in her chest of the promises and miracles that God had brought at the birth of Jesus and through his childhood. And she was feeling something in the spirit, remember? They're at this wedding, a feast of Cana. She's feeling something that really was God. And out of the blue, she kind of throws this suggestion out to him. They've run out of wine. And what does he say? He says the same thing. Yeah, what does your, what does your concern have to do with me? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about the difference of only a few minutes, it seems like, in the narrative. But God cares about minutes. Jesus was about to perform a miracle, but she was getting a little antsy there. <clears throat> you can help him. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My time has not yet come. Don't put me in the squeeze chute of human expectations. I don't have an obligation. I don't have a responsibility. I don't have a task except to glorify the one who sent me and to finish his work. So I am just going to exempt myself of your methodology, of your pressures. And it may be in five minutes that I call him over and I bless that water and make a miracle out of it. But don't try to hurry me up by five minutes. I'm trying to do God's will. I think that if ministers and aspiring servants of God could get it through their heads that all the Lord wants from them is total obedience, they would become so much more powerful. Because you cannot do anything apart from the grace of God. Jesus was five minutes ahead of the anointing to perform that miracle when his mom suggested it. And it would have been utter futility for him to try to push into it five minutes early, five minutes before it's time. He was only a few days ahead of the anointing that was going to come on him on the last and greatest day of the feast when his brothers tried to push him. But he was a man who knew how to be obedient to God even in timing. He would later tell his disciples, the times and the seasons belong to the Father's authority. And I'm not going to curtail the Father's authority on the earth by trying to do my thing my time and hope he sanctions it with a sprinkle of holy water. The things we think are important, God thinks are insignificant. And the things we think are great and stupendous, sometimes God thinks, are a big zero. What did he say about the temple when they were marveling? Oh, Lord, see these stones? Look at this great building. 
Did he think it was amazing? God doesn't do it our way. God does things strange ways. But he does it in a way that only he can get the glory. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us. Not of works for any man to boast in, but by his grace. And so many will say, ah, it is by grace. It is not of human works. Therefore, we don't have to be obedient at all. What? You would deprive God of the glory he wants from your life and disobey and claim that that, is, that would be works to obey him? Nothing could be sillier. What does Paul say? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not useless, was not in vain. For I, what did he say? Worked harder than you all. But it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Here comes Jesus. In the past, we had the law. It came through Moses. But here comes Jesus, full of grace and truth. Think about that. Grace is a quantitative substance that fills someone. It's not a writ, an exemption, a permit. It is a substance that fills someone. It does not say that Jesus had a writ of grace, a principle of grace, a word of grace only. It says he was full of grace. And what was that that he was full of? When he took to the pulpit the first time and turned in Isaiah to the place where it was written, what did he say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's what he was full of. What Hebrews calls the Spirit of grace. The charismata, the grace of God that brings salvation, that is a gift, that is not a drummed up work, but it comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. So by the grace of God, Jesus was what he was. And by the grace of God, Paul was what he was. And had that grace been useless, Paul would have been as lethargic as the Christians around him. But he said, my grace wasn't in vain, for I worked harder than you all, but it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So Christians who want to set up some dichotomy between works and grace completely miss the point. There is a legitimate dichotomy between the works of man and the grace of God, but there is no such dichotomy between the grace and works of God. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's the next verse in the loved chapter from Ephesians 2. God does things His way. 
And so as I've quoted recently from Matthew 10, Jesus really says the same thing that Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians 15. What does he say? When you're brought before rulers and authorities, do not worry about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. For in that very hour, my Father, or in one gospel it says, the Spirit will give you what you should say and how you should say it. And how does he then qualify that? And it will not be, it will not be you speaking. So when all the cheap gracers stand up and say, aha, works, you just turn around and say, no, by the grace of God I am what I am. May it not be me speaking, but my Father speaking through me what I should say and how I should say it. Cheap grace and this dichotomy that is so ruined the church between grace and works, this makes perfect sense for a body that is unanointed, for a church without the power of the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of the Lord is not upon the church, then their reasoning about grace is perfectly sensible. But if the power of the Spirit is still at work upon a body of believers then it makes no sense because there is an element in the equation they have not accounted for. It is the motivating, empowering Holy Spirit. That's what we want to do. We want to get to a place where we know God is having His way. Where we know that God is getting His glory. In Matthew 9 and 8 it says... When the crowd saw Jesus' works, they were awestruck and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. God gets the glory when men move in the anointing. God gets the glory when men move out of the comfort zone of what they can do in their minds, in their strength, by their own plans and reasons. And they move out of that and into the realm where they walk by faith and not by sight. But they don't sit there and rot. They actually get up and walk by faith and not by sight. How many of you know this scripture? Let your light so shine before men that they may see that you have no good works but lean solely on grace. Somebody's giving me a I'm getting a buzzer right there. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 16? Let... He's talking to who? He's already told him, I am the light of the world. But here in, in the 15th verse of this same chapter, he says what? You are the light of the world. Because that light is the anointing. And that aura that set Jesus aglow so that his garments were whiter than any launderer could whiten them. That light wants to rest upon a church. That light is the power of the Holy Spirit. It does not fit inside the boxes made by man. Boxes of theology, boxes of programs, boxes called churches. It rests on lives wholly devoted to him. He said to them, you are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hid. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a lampstand that it might cast light 
for to all who are in the house. And then he says this, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give you an applause? No, our good works are filthy rags. Human righteousness is not the righteousness of God, but the righteousness of faith. It gives the credit where it belongs. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. For I worked harder than you all. So here again he says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. There's a kind of good works that brings glory to man and that's the kind of works the Bible excoriates as well it should in all of us. But there's a kind of work that does not bring glory to man. There's a kind of work where we can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God did this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What did we say that the prime product was? To glorify God. Live and act in such a way that you don't get the credit, but that somebody does get the credit. Devotion brings glory, and obedience says devotion like nothing else. Let this mind be in you, Philippians 2, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by becoming obedient. Nothing says devotion like the humility of total obedience. Hebrews 13.21 says, May God equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Working in us, may God equip you. So we can do unanointed works. We can do unequipped works. Or we can do divinely anointed works. Divinely equipped works. And those who don't want to face the reality that the church is unanointed and is in desperate need of anointing, they're going to talk about works as if they're altogether bad. But if works are altogether bad, God is altogether robbed of the glory he wants from your life. Because it is when they see your works that are anointed by God alone that they give him the glory, your Father in heaven. May God equip you in every good thing to do his will. 
working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. So we can say when we enter into true obedience, that is not I, that is not me, but the grace of God in me. Or we can say, that is not me speaking, but my Father. If anything was good, it was from God, and if anything was bad, it was from me. To God be the glory. But God doesn't do things like we expect. What we want is to feel and to know in our spirits, we want our hearts not to condemn us, but we want His Spirit to bear witness with our spirits that we are sons of God. We want that assurance that the Holy Spirit is having his way in us. Isn't that what the song said? Lord, have your way. Lord, have your way in me. And isn't that the prayer of Gethsemane? Hmm? If it is possible, nevertheless, Lord, have your way. Lord, have your way in me. It's not, Lord, please anoint my way. It's, Lord, have your way. But I still have to be a participant. He's the motivator. He sets the timing. He says the what, the how, the when, the who to, the who with. But I still have to be a participant. I could make the grace of God void. Or else Hebrews would not warn us, do not do despite to the spirit of grace. And 1 Thessalonians 5.19 would not warn us, do not quench the Holy Spirit. I can quench it. I can suppress it. I can deny him before men. I can deny him the expression that he wants to have through me toward others. I can bottle it up. And if I couldn't bottle it up, he wouldn't say to me, whoever denies me before men, him will I deny before my father and my holy angels. Right? <clears throat> So I can deny him before men. How do I deny the spirit? How do I deny Christ? How do I quench the spirit before men? In the same way I deny the flesh. The flesh has an opinion and I, shut, I, I don't give it ex expression. The flesh has a judgment and I don't accept it. The flesh has something unkind or whatever to say and hopefully I just keep it under the blood. Keep it dead. And that's how I deny the Spirit. The Spirit has an opinion and I don't dare say it. The Spirit has a word and I don't dare speak it. The Spirit has a prayer and I don't dare pray it. The Spirit has a work and I don't dare yield myself to it. Paul said something very scary in Acts, speaking of this kind of denying of God and His Spirit. He said, I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because I did not shrink back from declaring to you the full counsel of God. He could have shrunk back. He could have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. He could have quenched the spirit. But he, he remembered how Jesus had said, whoever denies me, and he said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give the spirit expression through my life. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace, as of yet, has not been in vain. 
For I work harder than you all, but it is not I, but the grace of God that is in me. God gets glory when men do what he alone can get the credit for. How many of you remember what my dad has spoken about the word glory and its meaning in the New Testament? Anybody want to venture that? It literally means the radiant reputation of. Think about that. God's reputation gets a boost when you move in the Spirit. They want to tell you it's pride. They want to tell you it's human pride to take credit. No, no, no. When they see the works that only God can inspire, your Father is going to get a boost in reputation, not you. You're going to come and go. You're just a servant. You're just a play, but he is the one who gets the reputation boost. God gets a reputation boost when men move in the authority of the Spirit. It says, The crowd marveled as they saw the mute man speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and the crowd glorified God. Because men can't do those things. <laughs> but men really can't produce the fruits of the Spirit either. So if we would just walk in the fruits of the Spirit, it may not be as incredible or fireworks-like as miracle performing. But if we just walk in the gifts of the Spirit, in the fruits of the Spirit, God's going to get the credit. That they may see your good works. So God gets the credit when men move in the authority of His Spirit, in the anointing of His Spirit. In Acts 4.21, it says, When they had threatened the apostles further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because the people were glorifying God for what had happened. They went into the temple, and at the gate, beautiful, they met that paralytic, and everybody got up in an uproar. Well, not everybody, just the big shots who felt their power being threatened but the people were glorifying God. They weren't glorifying Peter and John. Remember when they tried to do that? Paul said, look, I am, we are men just as you are. This isn't about us. How about this one in 2 Corinthians 8, 19? God has also appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work these men this work is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness. Like that, this work is administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself. How about this one? And they were glorifying God because of me. Don't you want people to feel that way? Don't you want the Lord to say that to you someday? And they were glorifying God because of me. Let's look at that in Galatians. <clears throat> Here's how it reads. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, 
Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, quote, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. He who once was a troublemaker has now become an advocate. He who once tried to destroy this faith is exhibiting it. But God is getting the glory. But we don't know how he works. We don't know how he works. For the widow of Zarephath, when Elijah came up to her, and she was baking her last cake, did it seem like a great thing, baking cakes? It had a lot of consequence attached to it, but it was a pretty small thing. Could she have known when she surrendered a cake to a man that the resurrection of her son was in the balance? Could she have known when she surrendered a cake to a stranger from another country that the future resurrection of her son was in the balance. She could have said, I, I want to focus on what matters. That's peripheral. No. Obedience is never peripheral. When the Holy Spirit is pricking your heart and you know it, it's not peripheral. It is the most central thing that will ever happen to you. Or conversely, on the negative side, could Saul, king of Israel, could he have known when he decided to go ahead and offer that sacrifice, could he have known that his kingdom would be ripped from his hands and given to another? And that he would be permanently rejected by God from this day forth? No, because the things that man thinks are important, they're not that important to God. Jesus said this, that which is highly esteemed by man is an abomination to God. The things you get all bent out of shape about, they're not that important. But if you can express your faith and your trust in a little cake, the storehouses of his miracles might be open to you. When the great-great-grandson of Moses' brother-in-law tells his descendants not to drink wine, build houses, buy land, or plant vineyards, but to live in tents and be nomads in Israel. Did that seem like a big deal? No. In fact, he told that to them at a time when Israel was undergoing revival. And they could have pulled out and opened the Bible and said, there's nothing in the Bible that says we can't drink wine. I'm talking about the Rechabites. You know who the Rechabites were? The sons of Jonadab, the grandchildren of Jonadab. But just like that woman with the cake in her hand, the Spirit of God was pricking their hearts. You know, it doesn't make sense. But when Dad said that, 
I want to say I felt God was speaking to us. There are people who spend all their brain power trying to rationalize whether or not it's in the scripture to give up that cake. I want to let you know it's not. But is God capable of speaking to you and asking you to change things in your life, to give up things, to trust him in things? If you know how it's supposed to go, then when you end up on the backside of a desert called Midian, following a group of goats, you're going to feel like it's all over. But it may just all be about to begin. You may be at the fulcrum of your calling, the turning point, the pivotal moment. Because if you're walking by faith through that desert, you're going to be the only one in the world to see the only bush in the world that starts talking with the voice of Elohim. Somebody says, I want to do great things with my life. No, you don't. You want to do great obedience with your life. If God calls you to a job that seems like a dead end, you better stick at it. And you say, how long? Well, Moses tried 40 years. How long have you been at it? You need to feel that God can lead the steps of your life. If God calls you to a relationship and you think it's a dead-end relationship, you remember, did God call you to it? If you stick at it, you may be 100 and your wife 90 before the baby's born, but God has a way of doing his will for those who will trust him. Fast forward to the New Testament. Zechariah and Elizabeth. In this day, they would have divorced already. They would have turned on each other. But aren't you glad they didn't? God has a way of doing things that just doesn't make sense to men. Does the Bible dictate that we must all go break alabaster jars before the feet of Jesus? No. But the grace of God was pricking a lady's heart one afternoon. And it may, have been, may as well have been written on every page of the Bible because the saving spirit of grace was tugging on her to make whatever sacrifice she could. And she went in there. Small things, but are big in God's eyes. He said that he received an anointing. The one called Mashiach, the anointed one, received an anointing for the struggle that was ahead of him through that lady's small gesture of honor and praise and love. Does a cup of cold water seem like a big deal? It may entail the reward of a prophet of God. The big deal is to hear and to trust and to obey. That's the big deal. The big deal is not to set plans for our life to be a big deal. Because those usually are disappointed. 
Remember what Samuel told poor Saul when the kingdom was torn from him and given to another? What did Samuel tell Saul? He said, Obedience is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. God wants your obedience. And if it's to stand on the edge of the boat and hear him just say, come. Or if it's to feel your heart stirred with inaudible words to break a jar or to express your trust or to take a step out of Ur. Whatever it is, if we would obey under the anointing of his spirit, he would get the glory. And the more unlikely the scenario, the more glory he gets. The more, we can't, the more deprived we are of any right to credit, the more glory he gets. What does it say about Abraham? With respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, what? Giving glory to God. When does he get glory? When you grow stronger in your faith. What faith? The faith that should come into your heart whenever he talks to you. The faith that comes by hearing the word of God. That fills my heart with faith. Abraham, with respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. You deserve the glory. Isn't that what we're saying? And the honor. 2 Timothy 4 and 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. When God leads you out of temptation, even your own evil deeds, he gets glory. Isn't that what the Lord's prayer is? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Take care of us. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Help us to give love in order to receive it, knowing that there is a prerequisite. If you do not forgive those who trespass against you, Luke 6, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. We have to do something. We have to change our position, our attitude. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. What does deliverance from temptation result in? God getting the glory and the power and the honor forever. Amen. Our faith gives him glory. Our trust gives him glory. Our good works give him glory. Moving under the anointing and authority of the Spirit gives him glory. In short, letting him have his way in every situation we can. That's what gives him glory.
Jude 24, 124. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior who is alone wise be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. We give him glory and praise. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise. He gets glory in the church. To Jesus be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever or world without end. Amen. He gets glory through a whole sacrifice. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The last full measure of devotion and surrender. Having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had happened, what happens to the world when they see a full sacrifice? When the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God and said, certainly this was the righteous man. And Jesus said, and Jesus said this to Peter, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to them, follow me. We can glorify him in our total sacrifice unto death. We glorify him in yielding to his anointing. We glorify him by growing strong in faith. We glorify him by letting his name be our power and our strong tower. The crowd shouted, Blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We glorify him by being separate from the world in sanctification. 1 Corinthians 6, 20. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Romans 12, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which will be acceptable to God, which is your, your spiritual service of worship. Philippians 1.11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. How are we going to bring him glory? Letting him have his way. Thank you, Jesus. But do we know what his way looks like? Do we know that little cakes bring resurrection? Do we know that alabaster jars can be tied to salvation? Do we know that stepping out of the boat can exemplify our trust, can, can demonstrate our trust? Do we know? Do we know that being distracted on a boat project for 120 years can be the salvation of the world? Do we know that taking lunch to our brothers can awaken the warrior and the king and the prophet inside the chest of the shepherd? Do we know that wandering for 40 years on the backside of Midian is where God's going to find us? 
Do we know that opportunities at Potter's house that end in disappointments in prison finally end in the answer to prayers and dreams of decades? Do we know how God does it? We don't. So we have to know his voice. We have to know when he's prompting. And we have to hang on to that through the 40 years, through the darkness, through the uncertainties. We've got to hang on to that. And when we consider the impossibilities, we don't grow weak in faith, but we grow strong in faith and he gets more glory. God was getting the glory before the baby was born. He was getting the glory when Abraham's strength of faith was increasing. God will get the glory before your promise comes true. He'll get the glory right here in this meeting. If you'll grow strong in faith, glory will ascend to the Lord. We don't know. He does not say, I know the end result of what I've hoped for, and I'm persuaded it'll come to pass by the end of the week. Do you even recognize it? I hope you do. How many, how many Christians have you heard say, well, I thought this was God, but I've never been more disappointed in my life. I thought this was God, but it should have happened by now. There are people never receiving anything because they live by the assessment that their carnal nature makes on the decisions that faith prompted. But we speak spiritual truths assessed by spiritual thoughts. The carnal man cannot assess the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. When God speaks to you, hang on to it. Follow it through. Grow strong in faith. Give glory to God. Amen. And you need to believe that he can speak to you. That's why we worship the way we do. Because we want to cultivate and keep alive sensitivity and responsiveness to the God that so many people miss. We want to hear the voice that the heavens are declaring. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmaments tell of his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. We want to be people who can still hear what God is saying. And having heard it, hold on to it. Having heard it, act on it. Having heard it, trusted it. And having done all the above, brought him glory. So you can bring him glory if nobody comes to your church and you're called to be a preacher of righteousness. But if you do it for his namesake. You can bring him glory if you go to be an evangelist for Judah as Ezekiel the prophet and nobody's converted. You, your life is still fulfilling if you're doing it for God. If you're acting on the impulse of his anointing. Do you have faith that you can bring glory to God? Lord, that's all I want. That's all I want. Amen. I'm not worried they're going to forget me when I'm gone. I'm sure they are. I hope they are. But I hope they never forget what God did through us. Amen. They may not know our name like the song said. That's fine. 
but they're going to know what God did through us because it's forever. 